Uh, Imam Yusuf Estes uh, was raised as a strong Protestant Christian, born in Ohio, raised and educated in Texas, and is a former marketing entrepreneur and preacher of Christianity. He is now an imam. Uh, he joins us from California. We'll talk a bit about his uh, life story, and we'll also talk a bit about some of the facts and the fictions uh, behind some of the perceptions about Muslims in America and elsewhere in the world. And we'll take your telephone calls for him as well at 212-209-2900. We're very pleased to welcome Imam Yusuf Estes. Good afternoon, Imam Estes. Hello, and salamu alaikum to all of those who seek true guidance. Uh, alaikum salam. Sir, I'd like to start with a new poll that was released yesterday by the Council of Islamic Relations. Yeah, I heard about that. Somebody was telling me about it last night. Go ahead. Yes, now poll says that one in four Americans believes a number of anti-Muslim stereotypes and that negative images of Muslims are 18 times more prevalent than positive ones. That's a, a, a poll taken among, uh, a poll taken of Americans uh, regarding their attitudes toward Muslims and their perceptions of Muslims. Why do you think that is? First of all, let's talk about the statistic itself. For the benefit of those who just want it in plain English, it means one out of four Americans polled consider Islam to be a terrorist religion. Is that what we're trying to say here? Well, uh, it, it, it is simple, right or wrong? It is, it is, it is certainly okay. among the perceptions, the yes. The good news here is that means three out of four don't label us that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's good. And that's, that's actually better than we were uh, 13 years ago when I first investigated Islam because everybody I knew in those days considered Islam a terrorist religion. And the reason is because if you go back to the 70s when there was the, the hijacking of the planes and they were had uh, uh, Shiite Iranians on the tarmac somewhere making Salat and then going back inside the plane and killing people, and I remember that real well. And I remember being terrified of the idea of even being around any Muslims. And myself, I was so uh, scared from what I heard in the news and things that I'd seen. I mean, it would have been real easy for me to have been one of the four, if not one of the two out of four, because I think that's probably what it used to be if anybody knew about Islam at all. And those, the, most people didn't know what Islam even was. But uh, if they talked about Muslims and, and knew something about it, they all, you know, the majority were scared and afraid. And I think that's what we have today, only now we have a bigger population aware of something called Islam and something called Muslims. And also you have to consider that we have in our country uh, a group of people who are not necessarily all for the country, but they're very much for their political agenda. And when that happens, you have to be really careful because things get slanted in a particular direction. And oh, this case, the Islam is going to be the brunt of their joke, if you will. Or in the, let me take you back to the 60s, because I'm, I'm an old dude, you know, I'm 60 years old. So in the 1960s, everything that was evil was either a communist or a black person, you know. And now we're, we're just using Islam as a substitute for the other fears and so on. But in reality, there is something very scary out there. Now, I'm, I'm not selling that short. And I, too, am afraid. As a Muslim, I'm afraid of it, too. And that is that what, what's been labeled as terrorism, I, I label it as Zulum, uh, which is the Arabic word for this, and, and when there's this kind of great oppression out there, 
I fear that God, Allah, is the one who's going to intervene and bring about a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, happening on the people if we don't if we don't do something because God is very merciful and He doesn't allow these things to continue and persist. So this is really my fear is there, number one. Number two, after that, I consider that, you know, all of us in the world have a responsibility and, and need to look look to ourselves and see what we are doing or not doing about these events. And I think Muslims are probably the most guilty in the world of standing by and doing nothing when things are happening. They just, as long as it doesn't affect me and my family, I'm going to just kind of look the other way and be quiet. But people need to speak out, and that includes the Muslims, and bring all of the perpetrators of Bullam to justice. Uh, it needs to be done. Okay, that, that, that word you use there, sir, the perpetrators of? Vulum. Vulum. Oppression. Which, which means oppression. oppression. Okay. Any type of oppression, terrorism or tyranny of any kind, people need this to identify the perpetrators and bring these people to justice. And and by that I don't mean taking the law into your own hands. Of course, this is uh, this is against Islam, and it's against, uh, of course, here in our country, here in America. You don't do that. But there there are good people out there who really would try to work for a solution to a lot of these problems. But there are other people that actually make money out of the problem, and they make uh, gain power out of the problem. They don't really want to see it solved. Uh, for instance, let's let's take the the job of a preacher. Uh, is that they used to tell us if everybody became like angels, then you preachers would be out of work. So do you really want everybody to be good? Well, obviously, I I think that we should because I'd like to be out of work if that's all there was to be a preacher. <laughs> okay, now we're talking with Imam Yusuf Estes. Imam, one one of the one of the reasons I suspect that so many people, one out of four, which if you're only talking about four people would be one person, but if you multiply that uh, by by the population of the United. States, assuming that this poll has some semblance of accuracy, uh, would, would lead us to a substantially large number of persons. Perhaps one of the reasons is that uh, many people do not understand, many people are confused by so many competing claims from various clerics and religious leaders, all of whom claim to represent a, a, a true interpretation or, or the original meaning or the strict constructionist meaning of the religion Islam. And since you, sir, uh, were yourself a Christian for most of your life before you converted to Islam, I hope you don't mind if I make some comparisons to Christianity, which is more widely understood in this country. Would that be okay? It's your show. Okay. Now, uh, <laughs> in this country, when we say uh, someone is a Christian, as you know, it doesn't really mean anything. You could be Adventist or Methodist or Episcopalian or Fundamentalist, Baptist, whatever. Uh, when we hear uh, Muslim, uh, we also hear Shiite, we hear Sunni, and, and, we, and we hear, uh, for example, of uh, Islamic fundamentalists. We hear about uh, Wahhabists and People don't know what those things mean, and we have no way of differentiating. Could you guide us through these, some of these distinctions? Who, uh, what, what, what does it mean to be Shiite? What does it mean to be Sunni? What does it mean to be Wahhabist? And so on. Okay. Um, first of all, let me tell you that I wrote a story about this. Actually, I published an article or a paper on my website. And so uh, if anybody is listening would like to you know, have a chance to read the whole article, I think that would be to their advantage. Our website's called islamtomorrow.com slash groups, G-R-O-U-P-S, and it'll take you right to the article. 
And exactly what you're saying is in the article. And, and I had received an email some years ago, and somebody was asking me, they said, I came to Islam, but I don't know which group I'm supposed to be in. Should I be a Sufi, a Sunni, Neobandi, Shazli, Naqshabandi, Brailwi, Shiite, Ahmadiyan, Qadiani, Aga Khani, Wahhabi, Salafi, Yanafi, Maliki? I'm going, where did they get all these names? I think it's time for me to look into this seriously and, and, and produce something for the folks. Uh, the United States government produces a, a uh, manual for chaplains. I, I used to be a federal prison chaplain. And in this manual, it, it identifies it. And by the way, it's used throughout all the different levels of, uh, you know, institutions and government facilities such as county jails and so on, and also the military. And, and it identifies Islam, and then it identifies groups within Islam that have to be recognized and served if someone is uh, in that institution, whether it be military or in the, you know, incarcerated or whatever, they provide uh, religious services. And they recognize so many groups that I never even heard of. So I had to read and study and find out more about these groups, such as Five Percenters, Rastafarians, Moorish Science Temple, Nation of Islam, Ahmadiyyas, and so on, so on, so And there are some that m some Muslims consider they know everything because they know about the four methab. Or, or, you know, four schools of thought. But actually, there's more. There's more than just the four. So, basically, the bottom line in the article, we, we identify that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God Almighty, in His book, the Holy Quran, only identifies one group. And that's what I refer to in the article. I wish, I wish the people would take a look at it, because He identifies the group as being called Muslims. And He forbids us to divide up like this into these groups. And then there's a saying or teaching from Muhammad called a Hadith, and in that he also forbid us to divide into groups, and he forbid us to call ourselves by any name except Abdullah, Abdurrahman, and Muslim until the last day. So from this we understand that what people are doing is not what Islam is teaching. So as you said yourself, there are people who are going off and doing these things, but they don't represent Allah, they don't represent God, they represent themselves. And by the way, let me make this real clear. I do not represent anything or anybody. I don't consider myself perfect, and I'm always willing to learn more. So if anybody hears me make any mistakes today, realize that's from me, not from Islam. Now, sir, uh, I'd, 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 like to, I'd like to explore this uh, a, li a little further. Please. Now, within, within, the, within the Christian faith, with which I happen to be moderately familiar, uh, there are different interpretations of Scripture and, and of the rituals and the traditions that emerged over the centuries okay. uh, from the practice of religion. So, for example, they, some people believe that the Holy Communion, the body and blood of Christ, the, 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 the sacrament of the Eucharist. Some people believe that the body and blood are representative of the, 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 that the wine and wafer are representative of the body and blood. Some other people believe that it is it has actually converted into and actually becomes the body and blood. Similarly, some people believe that there's going to be a literal second coming, the clouds are going to part, and Jesus is going to come down in you know, ceremony and great glory and so on. Now, they're all, these are interpretations of the same texts and of the same traditions and rituals and beliefs that have emerged over the years in the religion. 
uh, are there different or competing interpretations of uh, the scripture in the Quran? Is it possible for the Quran, uh, for Quranic scripture to be interpreted by different groups differently to reflect whatever, maybe their, their individual cultures or traditions? Okay, I get the gist of what you're saying. Let's go backwards, though. Yes. I want to start with what you were saying. You mentioned about the Holy Unction or Eucharist. Yes. Uh, I want to mention to you there's also a, a lot of Christians out there who don't practice that. They don't do this Holy Communion, and they consider it a sacrilege. There are Christians who consider that it's incorrect to eat the blood of Jesus and eat or drink his drunk blood and eat his body, that type of thing, and they consider it to be actually barred from pagan rituals. Correct. Okay, so you didn't mention all of it, and I know you don't have time to go through all the different groups, just as we can't mention all the different beliefs of so-called Muslims. But let us now turn to your question about the Quran. Then let us mention that the Bible has nowhere in it mentioned that it is a Bible. The word Bible doesn't appear there. Nor does the word Christian uh, appear associated with Christians except to say that they were not called that until they were in Antioch, meaning they used to be called the people of the way. And additionally, this word Trinity didn't appear in the Bible. Okay? Now we look to the Quran, and amazingly, we find the word Quran in the Quran, we find the word Bible in the Quran, and we find the word Trinity in the Quran, and we find the word Christian in the Quran, and it's giving a very nice picture, by the way, of Christians, but it denies the Trinity. And so, let us look to what is the actual Quran itself. The Quran means a recitation. It does not mean a written book in your hand. If it's written down, it's called Mus'haf, not Quran. That's a mislabel to call somebody's book the Quran when it actually means what's recited. The Quran is preserved not as much on paper as it's preserved in the hearts today of over 9 million human beings that, that memorize the Quran exactly word for word without any variation whatsoever, over 9 million people, and the majority of those, over 88% of those, believe me, are not Arabs. 88% or more of those memorizing the Quran are not Arabs. Can you imagine this? Most of them are in Indonesia and Pakistan and India and Turkey and places like this. And out of the 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, it's not one out of four, according to the statistics that we were talking earlier about Americans considering about, you know, Islam. But 100% of all 1.5 billion Muslims in the world have at least memorized some portion of the Quran, be it only a few verses or at least a few chapters. But all Muslims have memorized parts, if not all, of the Quran in the original Arabic language. There is no other book extant for any religion on earth like this. And this is coming 1,400 years ago. And nowhere in Quran does it deny Christianity. It rather, it supports the original Christianity and teachings of Jesus and the original teachings that came with the prophet Moses, Abraham, and so on. So we have to understand that the only way that it can be misunderstood is if human beings want to misunderstand it, because it really is from God. And actually, this is true of all the scriptures. The Bible also came from God. We don't have the original anymore. We can't refer to the original. We don't have it. But we know that originally it did. And we know that people originally tried to do good works and do good deeds and believe correctly 
and live in peace together. But there will always be a faction of people out there who don't, and they will try to twist the meanings to satisfy themselves. And they, and they have to do that to get around amongst people who are believers, because if they identified themselves right away as being disbelievers in Scripture and so on, then these people wouldn't follow them around. But there are people who will twist the meanings, just like people twist the Constitution, who try to serve themselves and pretend that they're serving mankind when they're not. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, except that for the lay person, uh, the question then becomes, uh, who, who, how do I, uh, as a lay person, figure out who is twisting uh, the meaning? Uh, particularly, in, say, in today's world, uh, you, one, one probably, it would probably take a much longer time to, uh, to memorize the entire Quran today than it might have uh, 50 years ago simply because uh, of competition for time and the things that people have to do. Now, well, it still takes about a year and a half to memorize the whole Quran, but the thing is, do you have a year and a half to spend on it? That's all. Okay. It doesn't, it is, there's no longer today than it was then, but the difference is, will we commit to the time? And most people won't do that. That's true. But let us look to something else here, and I think this is relevant to our topic. And that is that when people start to talk about how, what the Quran means, just because you memorize the whole Quran in the Arabic language doesn't mean you know the interpretation of it. I'm saying that that preserves the text. It preserves the meaning, but it doesn't mean that the one who's reciting it knows the meaning. Right, so where do I go? Yes, so I follow. Instance, if I say to you in, in Spanish language, Rosa son roja, cioleta son azul, azucre es dulce, y también tú. And you said, wow, I could memorize that. And you did, but you wouldn't know what it meant, right? Right. And by the way, you want to know what it means? Oh, sure. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. <laughs> okay, now, <laughs> we're talking with Imam Yusuf Estes, and we'll take your telephone calls for him with your comments, questions, and observations, uh, very concisely stated, uh, at 212-209-2900 in a moment. Now, so the question then, uh, Imam, is, so where do I go for the interpretation? Now I know all this Arabic. Uh, I, uh, how, where do I go to figure out what it, to interpret it correctly, what it all means. Well, I studied, uh, when I first got into Islam, uh, very, very early on, I studied the, what's called the understanding or interpretation of Quran and how it's done. It's called Omo Quran in Arabia. And when I did that, I found out that nobody is allowed to give an interpretation of the Quran from their own mind, from their own akal, or their nafs, or their, you know, uh, ego that the Qur'an can only be really and honestly understood by taking the verses, there are 6,327 ayahs in the Qur'an, and it's not permissible to even take one of those and give a meaning without taking all of the others in, in consideration and comparison. So that's rule number one. Okay, well, actually, rule number one is you must know classical, Ar classical Arabic language you, uh, or fusha. You're not allowed to do this in some other language. Then, once that's established, when you go to get interpretation, the verses are compared to the other verses. Now, the next thing is to know the order in which they are revealed and what was the meaning implied at that time. The only way you can do that is to know what were the teachings of Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he explained these verses in context of how they came. So if something happened out in the desert in the middle of the night, as opposed to something happening in the city in the middle of the day ten years later, then you see it wouldn't 
it necessarily have the same connotation, and that's why he is there to clarify things and show us how to understand what is the, for this purpose and what's for that purpose. Now, that's keeping everything in context, in perspective of revelation, because Quran didn't come all at one time. It came piecemeal over a period of 23 years. And by the way, this was mentioned in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, you read it, you'll see about the one who, when the angel came to him, he was ordered to cry out or proclaim. And to cry out or proclaim in Arabic, that's ekora. And it's mistranslated to English as the word read, because read in Arabic is not ekora. Ekora means to recite. And or the word Quran actually comes from the same root, kara'a. So when he, peace be upon him, uh, Muhammad that is, uh, when he came and he got these uh, revelations over that 23-year period, he had to learn, just like anybody else, he didn't make this up, he didn't claim to be divine, but he had to learn, and the angel Gabriel uh, gave him the understanding of these verses as they came. So the only way it's fair to really look at the Quran is to look at it the same way he did. It would be wrong for me to, for you to write a book, and then I come along and say, this is what you meant by what you said, and then you already gave clarification, but I'm ignoring what you said. I'm just trying to put words in your mouth. And all of a sudden, I sound like some kind of a, you know, modern-day journalist who's out here just trying to get a story. Well, is, is that why people say, uh, since uh, an understanding uh, of, of the correct interpretation or meaning of the Quran uh, requires an understanding of what was originally intended to be the meaning or the original meaning as implied uh, at the time of the revelation. Am I saying this right? Um, if that is the case, is that why some people say that uh, Islam is a religion that has been stuck in the Middle Ages, that there has been no reformation in Islam, and that uh, uh, be because it is uh, a religion that requires an understanding of original construction, so to speak, and an adherence to that original construction, as, as it is understood by persons who are not Muslim, that the religion has essentially, uh, is essentially stuck in the Middle Ages or, or fossilized. And is, and, is, and is not therefore relevant to some of uh, the circumstances today, hence what appears to be um, the, the conflict between some interpretations of Islam and the rest of, of the non-Islamic world. Okay, first of all, I don't know if that's your opinion or if you're just... No, 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 I am asking, no, I am asking, I am, uh, okay. I am this, asking whether this, this is why people say that. Yes. Yeah, but this statement itself is what? It's an interpretation. Right. Because it presumes immediately that there's something wrong. It presumes that there was need for reformation. It presumes that uh, whatever was 1,400 years ago can't work today. And there are many things that we do today... And, and especially in America, that were based on a civilization over 2,000 years ago. For instance, I'll give you one example of something, and, and I'm not saying anything wrong with it. In fact, I, I'm, I love what we have going on here with our Constitution of the United States. But a lot of people consider wrongly that we are a democracy. We are not. We, we promote democracy for other people. We export it like crazy, but we're a Republican form of government. And we base this largely on the Republican structure of the ancient Romans. And uh, as I said, I'm not 
blaming that. I'm not saying anything wrong with them. I'm just saying, look to what we have, and we're taking a lot of example from there. And then we also take a lot of example in our government today from Islamic teachings in government over a thousand years ago from Islamic Spain and Islamic Turkey and Islamic uh, Iraq and Egypt and, uh, you know, the Holy Land, because Islam was prevalent and it had a whole entire government and a structure in place that we plagiarized, borrowed, and then reborrowed over and over. And I would call your attention to the works of Dr. John Esposito on this subject. Although himself not a Muslim, he very much defends the truth of what Islam is and was and how it is very relevant to what we do today. To presume that something is... 1400 years old and that it's wrong without any proof is a, is kind of a interpretation in itself we have to consider this that god allah he said in the quran he said on this day i perfected your religion for you now this means what he took in consideration everything in the future and in the past and it's all laid out real clear. The thing is, people don't want to adhere to that, so they consider it old-fashioned. For instance, if I said, well, I like to run red lights, and I consider it old-fashioned to stop at a red light. That's what people used to do a hundred years ago, but I see better now than they did in those days. And, you know, we have new kind of cameras that go up at high elevations, and we can tell there's no cars coming. I have radar detectors. I have this trip tick thing built in my car and I can go right through all these red lights because I don't need to stop but in case nobody noticed it's still a law and there's still other reasons besides the fact a car could come it could be a child crossing the street and we didn't see that you follow what I'm saying uh -huh. so there are a lot of laws that God put in place and and in the Bible it calls for those same laws look to the book of Leviticus look to the book of Deuteronomy and pay attention the laws are much more explicit there and much more harsh in dealing with people's sins and transgressions than what it is in the Quran additionally in the New Testament it clearly states over and again that Jesus calls the people to follow the commandments follow the commandments and that until the last day not the least commandment is going to be lessened and whoever does this and teaches this will be in hell so I'm serious when I tell you that there's nothing wrong with God's law. What's wrong with human beings who come along and say, well, because time went by, we don't need those laws anymore. It means that you've changed your society, you've changed your lifestyle, and you don't want to look to what the truth is, so you fabricate these things against God's Word. We're talking with Imam Yusuf Estes. Imam, uh, just let me give you an idea of how we're going to proceed. Uh, I'm, I'm going to raise a question with you, and we're going to take a break uh, at the bottom of the hour in about another minute and a half. When we return, uh, I'll ask you to address the question I'm about to raise, and then we'll go directly to telephone calls for you. I'm hoping that our listeners will make their questions as concise as possible. Now, when we began this conversation, you mentioned a few reasons why it is that so many people misunderstand and in some cases are even fearful of Islam. Now, one of the, one of the reasons uh, that we didn't cover is the fact that often when people hear about Islam for the first time, they're hearing about jihad and fatwa. They're hearing, for example, of the fatwa that was issued against Salman Rushdie for writing a book that 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 uh, allegedly well for whatever reason uh they hear about 
jihad, which is generally understood by non-Muslims um, to mean that uh, this is a holy war that is in some way sanctioned by Islam. Now, I'd like you, when we return, to uh, explain to us what is a fatwa, what is a jihad, in what cases are these uh, are these officially sanctioned by Islam or by the Quran? And then we'll go to questions for you. Is that okay? Whatever you want to do. Okay, thank you very much. Our guest is Imam Yusuf Estes. Uh, this is WBAI New York. It is 30 minutes after the hour. We'll be back with more of the Imam and your telephone calls in a moment. <laughs> I.org. We're talking with Sheikh Yusuf Estes, uh, who joins us from California. Uh, Imam, could you please now uh, address those two issues of jihad and fatwa? Okay, uh, let's take the first word first. I have, I'm looking at my own website while I'm talking to you, and I'm taking it from uh, the, the meaning of the word from our website at islamdemore.com. It's on a page called Kill. Dot ASP. That's islamdemorrow.com slash kill, K-I-L-L dot A-S-P. And you can go to the bottom of the page and it tells you the meaning of the word jihad is in from an Arabic root, jahada. It means to struggle, assert oneself as making a great effort to arrive at a conclusion as to the meaning of interpretation of Quran or Islamic law. And that's called ijtihad or to strive to complete a monumental task such as building a building. And this is called jahid. And to struggle to attain any objective is considered in general jihad. The purpose of the institution of jihad, this is point number two, must be understood that jihad according to the Sharia or Islamic law was instituted by Allah and he's the lawgiver himself. Only for the purpose of raising, protecting and defending the way of Islam and preserving the opportunity for people to know God and to worship him on his terms. And this is the jihad called uh, jihad sabilillah, or the, what people call fighting a, a holy war, although it's not considered in Islam a holy war. So that gives us the meaning. It means in general to struggle, and there's a struggle going on inside a person to correct themselves all the time. A struggle to correct your family and, uh, and to work to struggle to improve your community and struggle and fight in the way of Almighty God to fight against the word we used in your earlier part of your program called vulum. And this is something forbidden in Islam is oppression, and God forbids it on himself. He doesn't oppress, and he hates it when we oppress each other. And so this is something very, very important to consider, that jihad as a, as a war against people, human beings, can never be declared by individuals who want to just go out and be like a vigilante group and take the law into their own hands. This is not part of Islam, never was. Okay, and if somebody said jihad is in the defense of a, of a family or a human being, in other words, self-defense, this is incorrect. And I know a lot of people, especially Muslims, are listening to me going, huh, what, no, no, jihad is only self-defense. Self-defense is provided for early on in Islam that a person, any person, can defend themselves without declaring any jihad on anything. That's common sense. If somebody's attacking you, you're allowed to fight back. Duh. Don't, let's don't be stupid. <laughs> you know, and I don't like it when people lie. Because when you tell a lie, you're going to make it worse for everybody eventually down the road. You cannot sidestep issues. Islam does not mean peace. Jihad is not in self-defense. And, you know, let's go down the list. And a lot of these words in Kital does not mean slaughter. 
and so on. These words are being defined incorrectly, and what's happening is that these knotheads, crazy people, on both sides of the fence are using that to promote their own individual causes. And there are people on both sides of the fence that want this thing to continue because they both are getting their own satisfaction and their own agenda. And I hate that. I hate that we have people here in America that want to promote hatred toward Islam. And I hate it that we have people that claim to be Muslims that want to promote hatred toward us as Americans and, and against the, the, the free society. Because, in fact, both of these people are just as sick and deranged as the other. There's no difference between these two. And I've seen these people in action. I've visited these other countries, and they scare me to death, here and abroad. Okay. Now the uh, fatwa, and then uh, the okay, telephone the calls. fatwa. Let's go to that word. And that one's not defined on my website. I'm sorry. We do have some that are mentioned on the site, but I don't have that word defined. But I will tell you that a fatwa, a court, and this general English speaking, I'm sorry, but this is a word which means an Islamic ruling or an edict issued uh, by some human being, a person who's saying, well, based on my knowledge, this is what I consider the answer to your question to be, or the ruling on this particular issue. Like a man fights with another man, they go before the judge and they get a ruling from a judge, and that's what a fatwa is. Judges can make mistakes. So therefore, that is not considered divine. It's not considered holy. That's considered an opinion of a sheikh or an imam or a ruler or a a uh, qadi or hakim or judge, whatever. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand. So this thing that was issued against Salman Rushdie uh, was for for his book, the Satanic Verses. Uh, that 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 was the opinion of the of the uh, the, the clerical leaders of Iran. But okay, now let's let's look at this. Let's go back. At that time, I wasn't a Muslim, by the way, at that time. And when I heard about it, I felt I was sickened by the whole idea. I said, here's a guy who wrote a book, and now they want to kill him because he wrote a book? What is that? What kind of stupid... So I started looking into it, but I wasn't Muslim, and I wasn't really trying to look for any truth in it. But I realized right away that there's something wrong on both sides. Because guess what? It turned out, after I got in Islam and studied this subject again, it made a lot more sense. First of all, Salman Rushdie was a Muslim. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. And that's something that needs to be mentioned up front. The man came from a Muslim family, and he was attacking his own religion. So this is not the, the picture that was being brought in the West. Let's do that first. The guy was a Muslim. He's making fun of his own religion. So I went and got a copy of the book. If you haven't done it, you might want to look into it. I don't advise buying a new one. Go online and buy a used one because it's not worth it. When you read it, you'll say it's a piece of junk. It's not even worth reading, but it was on the bestseller list. And uh, some of those producers of the book, the public uh, uh, publishers, uh, sitting back even today making money off of it. Mm. And they were happy to see this kind of a ruling come out because it promoted their book. But in reality, uh, I heard what one person said, and I don't agree with them. They said that Islam uh, says that they can kill this man for writing a book. But in my studies of Islamic history, going back and looking even at what Imam Malik, Imam Malik was probably one of the strictest of all. Listen to what he said. He said it is sufficient. It is sufficient for us that if a person is desecrating the Quran, in other words, they're jumping up and down on it and urinating on it, something like this, that they can be killed for doing that. Okay? That mm -hmm. was Imam Malik's opinion. 
-hmm. But it was not the opinion of all of the scholars. And by the way, you might also note this, that Salman Rushdie didn't do those things. That isn't what he did. And Imam Malik most likely would not say this about this man, that he should be killed. But I'll tell you what should be done is that Muslims with any discretion at all should never even mention the book and let, and let it go by the way of the dodo bird and become extinct. And if, if they had done so, it would have been better for everybody. But this, I want to call your attention that, that there are people, even where I'm from in Texas originally, that there are people there in Biter, Texas, who used to be the Ku Klux Klan headquarters, that you could have said something against whatever they believe in, and they would have issued a fatwa against you immediately, and they would have carried it out. Because they did it. It used to be on a billboard there in Biter, Texas, about how they killed a person and nobody ever got prosecuted for it. We're talking with Imam Yusuf Esters, and we'll take your telephone calls for him. Uh, we have about 12, maybe, if we really, yes, about 12 minutes remaining. So what I'd like to do now is to get very concise questions, and uh, hopefully uh, we, we can also get some uh, fairly concise answers as well from uh, Imam Yusuf Esters. Good afternoon, you're on the air. Hello. You're on. Yes. Assalamu alaikum. Yes, brother. Uh, good, good afternoon to you, you Hamilton. Yes. First, let me thank you for bringing the Imam on. Okay, you're very welcome. Let's yes. have the question. Okay. Uh, where are you located? Where is where are you the Imam of? What masjid, brother? Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Alaikum salam rahmatullah. Uh, currently, we're out in California. We have some seminars that we're working, but I, I work out of Washington, D.C., and I travel all the time. I serve as a national chaplain. So I'm always everywhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm liable to pack, pop up in your backyard before you know it. <laughs> okay. No, let Are you in the New York area? Yes, I'm in the New York area. Okay, let well, just, just, watch, uh, just watch for us to be up there. We'll be up there probably during Ramadan at some time. Alhamdulillah. Listen, uh, I want to thank you, my brother, because you have certainly, what you said, everything is correct. I, I appreciate you for coming on and speaking, you know, uh, on Islam the way you have. Okay, thank you. May Allah reward you for this, my brother. And, and you, all of us, Jamia and, 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 and you, Hamilton, thank you. You must invite them back on. Uh, absolutely. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. Okay, <laughs> great. Uh, good afternoon. <laughs> We need questions, though, that are relevant to our topic. Jazakallah khair, brother. Don't turn it into a a fan club because that won't serve the purpose of what we want to do right now. Let's, uh, we have a question that came up, uh, if you don't have uh, anything out there. Oh, we we have lots of people who are, we have a full board. Let's ask me about something that's relative to our topic. Okay, good afternoon. You're on the air. Hello. Yes, you're on. Going once. Um, assalamu alaikum. Yes, hello. Um, I would like to comment that um, I'm, I'm 12 years old and I'm Muslim, and um, I like the uh, fact that you're bringing up Islam to people, for it, to people to hear. Okay, do you have a question for the Imam? Um, no. Well, you don't? Well, okay. thank you very much. Okay, th- thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, uh, Dr. Well, we need some questions. Uh, we have, I have some that are late in here that have come in an email. Uh, so, uh, oh, people have been sending. Well, okay, l- l- let's, let's go to, uh, to, to some of these others, though. We have about 20 people waiting here. Questions, please. Let's start with the question right away. Say salam alaikum and then give us the question. Assalamu alaikum. Would you just do one thing? Please explain, define the word Muslim. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, 
I'm so at fault for not doing that first. Thank you, thank you, thank you. JazakAllah khair. The word Muslim cannot be understood until you know what the word Islam is. The word Islam does not mean peace. So many times I heard Muslims say this, but when we greet each other, we say, Salam alaikum. That is peace. Salam is peace. Islam has the word peace in it, but it has a much stronger meaning. Islam is the perfected verb, action, or deed of doing surrender. Write these down. There's five things coming up. Here we go. Surrender, submission, obedience, sincerity, and peace. And if those are not all together, you don't have Islam. This is very important. And it's on our website at islamtomorrow.com slash word. And then you can uh, define it as a verb or as the um, uh, as the actions, what the actions of Islam as a religion. But understand this, that when a person believes in Almighty God and they're trying to surrender their free choice to God's will, then they are doing Islam. And whoever Islams, in English we'd put E-R, Islamer. But in Arabic, it has a prefix of mu instead of a suffix of E-R. So you say mu, Islam, and that means he's an Islamer. Such as if a person is a traveler, in Arabic the word suffer. And he's a, a mu suffer. Musafir. And if he's a caller to the prayer, which is Adhan, he becomes a Mu'adhan. And if he is a Sully, one who is praying, he's a Musulli. And if he's Islaming, he's a Mu'islam. So if you believe in God and you're trying to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, then by golly, you're a Muslim. You may not know it. You may not realize it, and you may be maybe in better shape with God than somebody out here claiming to be a Muslim. Good afternoon. You're on the air with Imam Yusuf Estes. Hello. Good afternoon. Yes. Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Uh, Pastor Michael Vincent Cree of One World Life Systems. Uh, Imam, could you please comment on the uh, false arrest, incarceration, and then forcing from his position uh, young chaplain Yi, who was down in Guantanamo, and also the impact of uh, a young 12-year-old like that when educational leaders are uh, wrongly uh, quoted and misrepresented and ultimately denied the, uh, the dignity of teaching Islam as you have so brilliantly done so far. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for a good question. Let me mention that there, he's not the only one. We have a number of imams that throughout history who have suffered persecution, ridicule, and they have been lied against and they've been spied on by others who claim to be Muslims and then for whatever reason or agenda they, they lie against them or fabricate things or twist meanings and then these poor imams are uh, being held out to dry for uh, the fetus that we mentioned earlier. In some cases the imams did make some mistakes and in some cases they were wrong but it's still at the same time they're not guilty of these horrendous things that are being charged against them but then this is something that goes along with the being a Muslim. You have to understand that this life is a test and Allah tests all of us. As a matter of fact even right now as I sit here in California I've received several uh, brothers who have told me that the FBI and CIA is investigating me in New York, Virginia, Florida, and here in California. And when they ask people about me, they say, oh, we're just trying to protect the sheikh. Tell us all about him. And I know that's not true. I didn't ask the FBI to protect me. It's nothing more than they're going around trying to figure out if I said anything wrong that they can try to use as some kind of hype in the media to, you know, 
actually justify the fact that they've got a job out here. And um, there's nothing we can do about that. There isn't anything we can really do until we elect responsible and dedicated people in the service of our government and not somebody that's working for some big company out here or some big organization that's you know could care less about the people that uh, that they're stepping on and uh, this is very important for Muslims to realize the value of going down and registering to be voters I know a lot of Muslims think that that's not true but I'm telling you that you have a voice here you don't have it anywhere else in the world like you have it here in America but the place to express that voice is at the polls go down and vote and if you don't vote, then you shouldn't complain about who gets elected. Uh, does Islam require uh, or suggest that people be active politically in, in their communities? I, I'm glad you brought that up to that question. I think that's what we should have started with in the program. But anyway, the thing here is Islam is a complete way of life. As it shows us even how to go to the toilet and how to go to our wives and how to have babies, and how to be born, and how to die, and how to bury. All the things in between are covered as well. And one of the most important things is government. Self-government, isn't that what we were talking about earlier? And the government of our families, the government of our communities. We as Muslims must be actively involved in all the things that are going on around us. And there is no such thing as secularism in Islam. Everything we do is under God's rule. He owns the earth and everything in it. For crying out loud, how could we go to the masjid and be real nice people and go out in the streets and be bad people? It doesn't make any sense. We have to understand that we are, if we can't have Islamic law in the country where we live, we still have to have Islamic law on ourselves. And we have to be accountable in front of Almighty God for what we do. And this is a, a teaching of Islam. This is very important for us to be actively involved, but not to the extent that we're going out and taking law into our own hands and making up things. Is the, and that's the whole point of this uh, program today is to get this message out to the people. Because for sure, whatever you do, you're going to be asked about it on the Day of Judgment. And nowhere in Islam was anybody told to do any of these horrendous acts that we're seeing. Now, I'm not taking into consideration personal vendettas that people have against each other or their rights against each other or self-defense and those kind of things, those are in a different category. And those need to be looked at under that, uh, under that type of scrutiny, not from the standpoint of saying, oh, well, Islam told him to do this or Islam told her to do that. Because it's not right. It's not fair to compare an apple to a banana. Uh, not the same thing. Uh, under under the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, girls were not allowed to go to schools. Uh, women physicians were not allowed to practice in some cases. Uh, male uh, OBGYNs, for example, could not uh, perform their 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 work. Uh, and um, and uh, so it, it and and women were required, of course, to wear burqas. Now this was done in the name of Islam. Uh, what I, my my question to you then would be: Are women uh, in Islam, do women enjoy equal rights and was any of that uh, image no, that we no, saw from the Taliban, uh, what, what, what is, is, that, is that reflective in any way? I understand where you're going, but let, me, let okay. me give you the answer before we run out of time. Right. Women and men do not get equal rights in Islam. Okay, and I know again people are going to be screaming and hollering and saying, oh my God, this guy is, you know, is a cap or something like that. For saying. It's not equal, it's called fair. Because a man doesn't equal a woman, and a woman doesn't equal a man. 
Allah created us and he knows we're different. Therefore, he made rules for both of us and he spelled them out in the Quran. But fair treatment is definitely right there and God does treat the subject of men and women alike. Read the chapter in chapter 33, verse 35 in the Quran, wherein Allah says, For the believing women and the believing men, for the fasting women and the fasting men, for the God-fearing women and the God-fearing men, and he brings it like that. Oh, well, it was men and then women. But anyway, the point is, he clearly does make it known that he's talking here for all of his creation of human beings. But when it comes to a man, he tells that the man, this is chapter 4, verse 30, I think 34, and it says the believing man, the, excuse me, the man is having a role in Islam to take care of the women, and he puts him in authority in here to do what? And it says he's in authority to do two things, to protect her and to provide for her. And those two jobs are working jobs. That's not, it doesn't make him a king, that makes him a worker. And likewise, the woman, she's the queen of the house. That's her job, to take care of this. And she's the one taking care of the children because she's the one that has the baby. I mean, you know, it's kind of foolish to try to make a man and a woman exactly equal in all matters. But as far as equal treatment, as far as being fair, absolutely. And by the way, today there are ten women entering Islam for every man. So if it's so oppressive, how come we still have such a huge increase more so of women coming to Islam than men. And the fact is because women in real Islam are treated very nicely. And by the way, let's mention this, that since the Taliban have been overthrown, driven out, or whatever, in Afghanistan, the newspaper articles as recent as last month talking about there said some of those women are still so backward, they're still wearing the burqa. Meaning that those women want to wear it because ain't nobody forcing them now and they still wear it. And in Turkey it's increased and over there it's looked down on by the government. You can't even go in any public building wearing this covering on your head. But over there in Turkey we've had a big increase of women wearing the hijab. And the same way in Egypt where it's not encouraged for the women. There's no law saying they have to do it. But the women of Egypt are increasing wearing this. And this just came as a report this year from over there. So this is this is very much misunderstood to say that because women wear this that that it's being forced. Now the countries which do force that, I disagree with them. I have very much. I just came back from Bahrain and I love Bahrain because they don't force anybody to do anything. If you want to be a Muslim, go ahead. But if you want to be stupid, go ahead. It's no it's no sweat off their nose. They and I like that. I think that. You want to see an example of how Islam should work, you could check out countries like Bahrain where they don't force people to go pray, they don't force you to fast, but they make it easy for you to do it. Our guest uh, has been Imam Yusuf Estes. You can find out more about uh, the Imam's work and uh, his writings at islamtomorrow.com. That's I-S-L-A-M-T-O-M-O-R-R-O-W, islamtomorrow.com. Uh, Imam, I'm going to put you on the spot here and say that uh -oh. we are going to, I am going to invite you to return. Uh, I'm going to call you off the air and invite you to return sometime soon. And I hope that you will oblige us. We have so many people waiting to talk with you, but we're out of time. Well, why don't we do this? Just tell the folks to let you know if they want us to be back on and if they want to make a program where we just answer questions, we can do that too. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Imam Yusuf Estes. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the program today. I would like to say thank you to uh, our good friend Hisham, uh, who is a regular listener to this program and who put me in touch with uh, Yusuf Festus. Uh, I, I want to say uh, thank you very much to Hisham uh, for his work in uh, arranging 
uh, for me to make contact with the Imam. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for your questions. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you and I are going to do this all over again tomorrow at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I shall see you then. The good Lord willing and the quick. All right.